Mark chapter 2. I'm going to read verse 1 all the way through chapter 3, verse 6. This is God's word. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, 
his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is now lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not, it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for men, not men for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the men, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is God's word. You may be seated. As a reminder, we're looking at these large chunks of uh, Mark's gospel because our aim is, as we go through Mark's gospel, that we would tell the story. Uh, it, it seems to us that one of the prominent needs of our day is for people to put together the various pieces. You hear about Jesus, but you're not sure what the story is. How does it fit together? And you, you take something out of context, you don't understand it, and it's, it's critically important for the future of the church, for the future of the, the witness of, of Christianity in this context, in this culture, that we who follow Jesus can put the story together. So we're looking at some bigger chunks in Mark's gospel, and there's a particular story here that's about the conflict, a conflict, and it's a conflict between religion and Jesus. And there's a particular way that this conflict is being handled by Jesus that is designed to reveal to us an overarching story about what the real nature of the gospel is as opposed to uh, mere religion, mere human religion. Uh, and uh, at the time, the particular form of human religion was, of course, Pharisaism. And we'll think about that. But the same kind of conflict is evident between Jesus and other forms of human religion today. And what we need to be holding on to is the, is the real nature of who Jesus is and what the gospel is and have that story clear in our minds. And this conflict, conflict often reveals uh, the real nature of something. This conflict here is intended to bring into stark emphasis absolute clarity what the real nature of the story of the gospel is. And, Jesus, and we're going to walk through uh, that, that conflict together. Now there are all sorts of different ways. You know, this isn't about how to handle human conflict. I, I remember when I was 
um, at elementary school. I went to an elementary school that, that had, as its part of its, uh, it was pretty, um, how should I put it? You know, we, you wore a uniform and uh, you started to learn Latin at the age of seven. And, you know, it was pretty, it was that kind of school. And as part of it, because they didn't just want to create academics, they wanted to tr- create tough men. Um, uh, there was all sorts of sports as well. And in that particular kind of education, the, the theory is to create a well-rounded human being. You have you know, high-end academics, but you also have really hard athletic uh, pressure too. They, they sort of go together. And as part of that, every boy in that school, so starting from the age of seven up until 13, that school went, every, every boy in that school uh, was taught how to box. And I can still take the right position. Um, and, and, um, and I remember well those boxing bouts in that kind of conflict. In fact, this is how old school the school was. If there was a serious conflict between boys at the school... Um, a boxing ring was drawn in the gym. Gloves were passed out. Uh, If you were really savvy, you made sure you got the right kind of glove because some of them had been around so long and the the foam had been so worn down or they're made of horsehair rather than foam that, you know, if you got hit by one of those, the thing was over. And, um, yeah, so they had, you know, and the, and the young boys went at each other, hammer and tong, like bam, 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 bam. And the end of it, you know, take the gloves off, shake hands, we're done, it's over. I have sometimes wondered whether such a scenario should be introduced into church life. <laughs> a lot of the history of church conflict could have been solved. I jest, of course. But here, that's just to say, here is a conflict. And I say, why should I listen to this, these stories about conflict here? Let me give you a couple of reasons. One is because churches, we're obviously a church, have a tendency to decay in one of two directions. Now, I don't think we're in any danger of doing it, but we need to be aware of it. They tend to decay either towards... Um, liberalizing their religious commitments and downplaying doctrine and morality, long history of churches doing that, or they tend to decay towards becoming a sort of pharisaic, narrow-minded, legalistic club for those who are especially pure. And there's a long history of doing that. Jesus is neither of those things. So when you understand that story. But then even outside the church, and of course we don't spend all our lives sitting in this room, we're all engaged with the culture and the context. Outside the church, there are other kinds of religious commitments. The religion of self, of individualism. The religion of, uh, of, a, of a corporate loyalty to, to a particular group. Um, 
Sometimes the word woke is used for that sort of thing. Um, most commonly today, sociologists say that, that the, the most common religion today in America is syncretism. All roads lead to God. Everyone's basically good. But Jesus is none of that either. Well, what is he? Let's see how the story is told. First, we have a conflict about who has the authority to forgive sins. This is, of course, the story of the paralytic, the first part of chapter 2. And in this, in this story, um, Jesus there is at home, we're told. He's uh, literally in the house. It could be his home, I suppose, his family's home. It could be Simon's home. He's, but they know he's there. Jesus is in the house, and people are packed to hear him and they're gathered together and there's no more room they're even at the door they're outside listening in and and he, he's in this um, first century house where there was a flat roof probably just one one story just uh, and, uh, and um, uh, outside stairs that went up to the flat roof and the roof would be made of wooden beams with mud caked over the top so you could, you could dig out the roof, which is what they do, or literally it says unroofed the roof. They took the roof off and they lowered this paralytic down and was told that Jesus saw their faith. Uh, that is, the faith of the paralytic but also the faith of those who brought him because they were all trusting that Jesus would do something and his, sons are, his sins are forgiven because he trusts in Jesus. Jesus is saying, I can forgive you. But the scribes, this is, of course, the scribes who are a subgroup of the Pharisees, they're a sort of scholarly subsection of the Pharisaic movement, the scribes are questioning their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Here's the thing. They are right that only God can forgive sins. Listen, if you sin against me, I can and I'm called to forgive you. But if you sin against me, John out there or Bill out there, if I came along and I saw you sinning against him and I said to you, don't worry, I forgive you, you think I was mad. You hadn't sinned against me. Only God has the authority to forgive sins across the board because all sins are ultimately against him. And so they're right that only God can forgive sins. But Jesus declares that his sins are forgiven, which must have been something of surprise to them, given that wasn't his presenting issue. He was paralyzed in order to teach us something, to teach them something. He says, so that you might know, this is why he's done it, but that you may know, verse 10, that the Son of Man, this is a well-known title at the time from the book of Daniel that was prophesying a divine-like human figure who would arrive, and they didn't know who it was. And when Jesus, and this is the first time he uses it in Mark's gospel, calls himself the Son of Man, he's claiming he's the fulfillment of this category 
from Daniel of this divine like son of man figure. So that you may know that the son of man has an authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, uh, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them. So they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we've never seen anything like this. So the point that Jesus is making is that he is God. The Pharisees say, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus proves to them by doing a physical healing that they can all see that he's also done the spiritual healing that's physically invisible to show them that he's God. Now that issue, who has the authority to forgive sins, is the heart of all religious conversation. Even the religion of self, individualism. What, is, what do people often say today when they're feeling guilty? I just need to learn to forgive myself. But of course, actually... Only God can forgive you. What we need is not to learn to forgive ourselves. What we need is to learn to ask Jesus for forgiveness. Because He's God, not the self. It reveals the truth of the gospel story. Well, the next conflict is uh, with this tax collector, Levi, and of course, this is verse 13 and on. Uh, Jesus um, comes to him and says, remarkably, follow me, and even more remarkably, he goes and uh, eats dinner at his home uh, with other religious outcasts. When you see sinners in this sense here in the Bible, it's, it's referring to these people who the Pharisees viewed as morally beyond the pale. They'd done something so morally bad that they were not acceptable anymore. That's why they're lumped together with tax collectors who of course were viewed as traitors because they were collecting tax for the Roman Empire. And there's Jesus and he's eating with them and the scribes of the Pharisees, the same group of people, these scribes, when he sees them eating with tax collectors, uh, 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 sinners and tax collectors, verse 16, they say to his disciples, so they go up to his disciples, Jesus is there eating with them, and they start a sort of whisper campaign with his disciples. What, what's he doing? How can you follow this guy? Look, look what he's doing. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them in a brilliant, poignant image. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, here, what's the bone of contention here in religion? The bone of contention is, what's the right approach to those who are viewed by society as morally repugnant, outcasts? The Pharisees had an answer to that. They're untouchable. Don't associate with them. They were a purity movement. So they cannot 
allow themselves to become impure by eating with tax collectors and sinners. Many religions today and popular religions in America have an answer to that, which is doesn't matter what you do, doesn't matter what you think, everyone is just, well, it's all good, man. But neither of those things are what Jesus says. He doesn't say it's fine to be unwell and we're just going to allow people to be unwell. What he's saying is these tax collectors and sinners are sick and they need healing. He's not saying they're not sinners. He's saying they need saving. It's a different story. So here at the church, everyone is welcome. You don't have to check certain boxes to come through the door. This is the Lord's house. Jesus is here by his spirit. We want anyone to encounter him. But part of that encounter is to realize that we are sick. That we need healing. That we're sinners. And we need saving. We're proud and we need to be humbled. We're arrogant and we need to be meek. We are, yes, sexually sinful. And we need to have Jesus come into our lives and and help us live in purity. We're sick and we need a doctor to heal us. What Jesus is saying is it would be as absurd to keep all the sick people out of the hospital as it would be to keep all the sinners out of church. Ridiculous. But it would equally be as absurd to get all the sick people into the hospital and then get rid of the doctors and not try to heal them. This is a different story. Healing, saving, sick, sinners... Well, there's another point of conflict that also brings out the the difference of the story. And this is about fasting, or at least on its surface it's about fasting. It's really about something a bit deeper than that. And this goes from verses 18 uh, through to 22. And again, it's the Pharisees, uh, though there's John's disciples who are also fasting. So it says, and people came and said to him, it's literally, and they came and said to him, is that the Pharisees, is that John's disciples, is that people who are observing what John's disciples and the Pharisees were saying? For myself, I think it's the Pharisees again, because every other story is about the Pharisees. But if you don't think it's that, that's fine. At any rate, it's people observing this fasting from both John's disciples and the Pharisees, and they're coming with a question. There's some kind of conflict. And what they ask is, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So, as I say, superficially, this is about fasting. But actually, as I say, it's about something a bit deeper. Verse 19, Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So, and then he says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth in an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. 
And, and these are different images to make the same point. Let me, let me bring out the image. So bridegroom, the guest of the bridegroom fasting. What he's saying is, to fast while I am here would be as absurd as to go to a wedding and afterwards there's a reception and refuse to eat anything because you're fasting. I mean, come on, it's a wedding. You're there to celebrate. You're there to feast, not fast. But, he says, the days are coming when my my disciples will fast. So Christians today do fast. Um, and uh, for, for, um, to pray and uh, to, uh, um, to mourn over their sin and to ask God to intervene in a serious situation. It's a perfectly normal part of regular Christian life. You don't have to. It's not mandated, but it's perfectly normal. So he says, yes, it, it, Christians will fast, but I'm talking about something bigger than that. What, are you, what is he talking about? What he's talking about is wine and fresh wineskins. A new cloth on, uh, not the unshrunk cloth, otherwise it will tear away from the, from the old cloth. And what he's, what he's saying is there needs to be a complete and radical change of life, new wine and fresh wineskins. And then when you encounter me, well, of course you're going to feast. So what's the bone of contention? It, the bone of contention is, is religion primarily about fasting, being sad, um, or about feasting, celebrating, And, of course, in a sense, that's the wrong question. It's a false… it's a false dichotomy. Yes, of course, Christians will fast because there's a time when we need to repent of our sins and put our trust in God and seek Him through fasting and prayer, of course. But the fundamental characteristic of what it means to know Jesus is like being at a wedding. It's like having new wine and a whole fresh wineskin. It's a transformed life. Again, you see, it's a different story. Why? Because the, the uniqueness of the Christian message is when you put your trust in Jesus, you're not just making a new resolution. You're becoming a whole new person. Regeneration, new wine, fresh wineskins, a whole new piece of cloth, all new. It's not just human religion. Well, there's one final conflict that is especially pointed, and this is, uh, runs from verse 23 to um, uh, verse 6 of chapter, th- of chapter 3. And of course, it's about the Sabbath and about um, Sabbath worship. And uh, Jesus and his disciples are walking uh, on the Sabbath. And I think the, these two stories go together in the synoptics and they go together in Mark here. And I think they're, 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 they're on their way to church, you see, on the Sabbath. 
Um, and it reminds me of one story of, um, of a pastor who was pastoring a rather Pharisaic kind of church, legalistic kind of church. And uh, it was a very snowy day that winter. And there was no way to get to church, but he was determined to hold a church service. And so he, um, the, the church was on a, a river, on, on, next to a river, and the river was frozen over. So he put on his skates, and he skated to church on the uh, river. And the, uh, the leaders at the time felt this was outrageous because you weren't meant to, you know, skating was fun. I mean, it was a game. You're not meant to play games on the Sabbath. And he'd gone there because he wanted to open the doors in case anyone came along so he could preach a sermon, you know. It wasn't quite like preaching on Labor Day, but there were less, less attendance that Sunday. But he wanted to be there. And um, eventually, uh, one of the leaders looked at the pastor and said, okay, so you skated to church, open up, okay, that's good. But let me ask you this question. Did you enjoy skating to church? And the pastor said, no. He said, well, that's fine then. <laughs> Such is the way of religion. So there they are. They're going uh, to, on the Sabbath, and they pick, uh, verse 23, some, they pluck some heads of grain, and they say, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, you, you probably don't want to read all this sort of stuff, but if you did, there's all sorts of extraneous religious rules that the Pharisees accepted as equally authoritative on top of Scripture about the Sabbath because the, the, the Old Testament said don't do any work on the Sabbath. It's meant to be a day of rest. But they then wanted to define what work was, and so they added in all sorts of other rules to define what work was. And this for them at least this group thought that plucking heads of grain when you're hungry was quote-unquote working and then Jesus replies the most fascinating way it's not how I would have thought of replying look what he says verse 25 have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry he and those who were with him how he entered the house of God by the way I think this is an indication, all, we'll see this all the way through, there's a theme of Jesus' divinity. I've pointed out one of them. I think in a sense what he's saying is Jesus himself is the house of God. And ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. In other words, what, amazingly, what Jesus says here is instead of saying, no, it is lawful for my disciples to pluck um, little bits of grain as they're walking along and chew it in their mouth to sort of get some nourishment, and, and that would be arguably lawful by some of the Pharisaic rules, but he doesn't do that. What instead he does is he says, well, there was David, and he also broke the rules. And then the point, of course, is that he is greater than David, and if David and his followers broke the rules, surely that, well, he's the, he's the Son of Man, and the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And, and the story about the, the Sabbath and the synagogue continues to uh, chapter 3. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus. You see, in their rules, you could, uh, you could help someone medically on, on a Sabbath if um, their life was in danger. 
But if their life was not in danger, you could not help them. You had to wait until the next day. Well, he has a withered hand. It's bad, but his life is not in danger. And so they're watching Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. That's what religion's like. There's always watching to see if we can, if we can get you. And Jesus, uh, verse 3, said to the man with the withered hand, come here, or literally, come in the middle. So Jesus isn't hiding. He's bringing the conflict into the open. Come in the middle. Everyone will be able to see this. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? What a question. Jesus is showing that the bone of contention is what is the purpose of the Sabbath and Sabbath worship. As we might put it today, what is the purpose of Sunday and Sunday worship? Uh, they, they have nothing to say. And then Jesus looks around at them. Remember, the man's in the middle, and they're, they're watching to see what he might do, that they might get accuse him. He looks around at them with anger. This is righteous anger. Not all anger is wrong. There is a place for righteous anger. But in your anger, do not sin. So even for us who are not the Son of God and divine, anger is a risky emotion. Even righteous anger. In your anger, don't go too far and sin. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Here is the issue. Their hearts are hard. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. What a command of Jesus. And he stretched it out. His hand was restored. And what do the Pharisees do? They go out to plot to kill Jesus. So each of these stories of conflict is revealing the stark difference between human religion of whatever kind. And it's easy, isn't it, when we read the Pharisees in church circles just to think, oh, those Pharisees, they're so obviously wrong. But any kind of other religiosity has to answer these kind of questions. How are you going to be forgiven? Who's in? Who's, who's not in? Uh, uh, what is the purpose of the gathering? And Jesus is saying it's for saving, for healing. We gather here to receive Jesus' help, his power, his saving, his healing. Uh, that's why we gather. We want to hear him from his word so that he might minister to us. We're not here because, well, I go to college church and it's a very good church. Aren't I a good person? We come here because we're sinners and we need a savior. And of course, uh, each of these uh, stories of conflict are connected. 
And over and over again, what we're finding is that religion is trying to kill. Uh, they accuse him of blaspheming, which, of course, the crime is death. Um, they don't want the sick to be helped so that they will die. The wine it poured into old wineskins, not the, the newness of a total um, regeneration, total change of life, will be destroyed or die. Uh, Abiathar, the high priest, uh, if you look it up in the Old Testament, you'll find it's Ahimelech, actually. But the reason why I think Abiathar is mentioned is because Ahimelech is killed and Abiathar survives. Death, life, and of course, on the final gathering in the Sabbath, they're trying to kill while Jesus is saving. It's probably an apocryphal story, but it's so good I can't resist closing with it. Irish champion uh, boxer who started to follow Jesus and was changed and uh, was going around evangelistic meetings at the time in Ireland, giving his testimony of how Jesus had changed his life from being a, a brawler, a fighter, an angry man to a whole new person. He was giving this testimony over and over again, becoming quite well known for it. And then at one event, a huge event with a massive crowd, as he was giving the testimony, someone managed to rush onto the platform and took a swing at the Irish champion boxer and hit him in the face hard. There's a hush. Silence. What's, what's he going to do? Is, is he really being changed or would he now pummel the guy? And so there's a moment where everyone's like, oh! and the Irish champion boxer just holds himself up and slowly turns the other cheek. Whereupon his adversary hits him in the other cheek. Silence. The Irish champion boxer then looks out at the crowd raises his arms and says in an intonation of solemnity, our Lord has given us no other instructions. <laughs> I guess we all feel like that sometimes, right? But here, Jesus... And I'm not, don't exegete that moment for me, please. But <laughs> here Jesus is actually bringing the conflict to the surface. You know, stand in the middle so everyone can see. Because he's orchestrating the whole thing that he would be killed. That we might have life. Oh, what a savior. Oh, what a story. The gospel of Jesus. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, we do thank you that you are our savior. And we, yes, confess that we are sinners in need of you. And I pray, Lord, that you would reach out and heal broken hearts, soften hard hearts. Oh, Lord God, would you by your spirit come and work among us now? Cause faith to arise so that you might look and see their faith and say your sins are forgiven.
Take away guilt and shame. Lord, would you pour out the new wine of your Spirit upon us and make us whole fresh new wineskins. Oh Lord, would you say to those with withered hands or disappointed lives, fearful futures, stretch out your hand that they might take a step of faith to walk following you in newness of life. Oh Lord, would you work this morning, I pray, for your great glory. And in that precious name of Jesus, amen.